when to go to a wedding. Recently, there has been something of an online storm among Reformed evangelicals around the question of attending weddings, in particular, a transgender wedding or a gay wedding. Now, I believe there's usually very little to be gained by publicly commenting on internet uproars. But every now and again, it's appropriate, especially when it has real-world implications for the practice of our faith here and now. In this case, it provides an opportunity for us to get our ducks in a row so that when we're faced with the issue ourselves, we're already equipped to deal with it. Unfortunately, this stirrup is as a result of Alastair Begg recommending a Christian grandmother attend her grandson or granddaughter's transgender wedding and even give a gift. Alastair has been a trusted and faithful gospel preacher for many decades, and so this recent advice has caught a lot of people off guard. Alastair has not shifted in his theology, yet the application of his theology has exposed a weakness that many of us evangelical Christians didn't realize we have. More on this weakness in a moment. I'm certainly not going to bore you with a rehashed history of who said what in this Alastair Begg stir-up, but only mention it to set the scene of this discussion. You can look it up on your own, and I recommend the advice of uh, Piper, as well as direct you to responses provided by Wilson and Friel. We're not decrying Begg as a heretic, but we must certainly say that he got his advice very wrong. We're living in the midst of cultural upheaval in the West. Many Christians are grappling with how to walk faithfully in the midst of a society that seems hell-bent on turning itself into a dystopian techno-utopia that could outsin Tyre and Sidon. The Christian, trying to be faithful, is often unsure who to listen to in the cacophony of voices. Some of the public Christian leaders who we have traditionally respected have become suspiciously quiet or soft. As a recent conference panel demonstrated, John Dixon, Sam Albury and D.A. Carson, all on the same panel, ducked an opportunity to make clear statements on essentially this issue. Exposing our weakness. So what is the weakness I mentioned? As followers of Christ, we follow our Lord's example of placing a high value on compassionate, gracious love, as well as a high value on righteousness, holiness, and truth. Sometimes we get into situations in life where we think these things are in opposition to one another, and we must prioritize one over the other. Look at this example. Imagine someone says, I received a wedding invite to my friend's gay wedding. I don't approve of what they're doing because God doesn't approve. However, if I don't go, he is going to feel hurt by me. If your answer in this moment is to say, while not going to the wedding would show you're separated from that sin, i.e. holy, you should go to show God's love. If you would say and respond that way, then you have got the weakness of which I was speaking. Let's explore this for a second. God is holy and God is love. When we suggest... Yet, when we suggest that we must suspend our holiness to pursue love in the first issue, here is me. (laughs) Let me try that again. God is holy and God is love. 
When we suggest we must suspend holiness to pursue love, the first issue here is making God's attributes, and by extension our calling, a house divided against itself. It makes love an enemy of holiness. Can anyone seriously argue that somehow in the nature of God there is internal strife? Is there discontinuity in God where an aspect of his perfect nature is at odds with another aspect? Implying that it is more important for you to show love than to show holiness pits one against the other in a way that God does not. The second issue here is disconnecting love from God and making people the arbiter of what is loving. When we disconnect love from God, then we end up in all sorts of bad places like approving of sin in the name of love. We should not take our ideas of what is loving and call that godly love. Instead, we let God show us what true love is. God's love is the is one that does not approve or mingle with sin, but that absolutely always fits with true holiness. It is because the Lord is fully loving and fully holy, both at the same time, that we have the good news that Jesus came into the world to deal with sin through love and make humans holy. God loved us despite our sin, but then acted to save us from our sin. Now, I'm sure you have a bunch of follow-up questions on this topic of gay or transgender weddings and what Christians should have to do with them. So let me move away from talking about things in the abstract and answer some likely questions. What weddings should Christians avoid? We should stay away from not only bad weddings, but any celebration of sin. And this includes weddings where one or both have unrighteously ended a previous marriage, such as a guy leaving his wife to marry a mistress because this would be endorsing adultery. This also includes incestuous marriage and marriages where a believer is willingly entering into a marriage with a non-believer. It's all sin, so we can't turn up and celebrate it. Gay marriage is not a real entity. Like the word nothing... We can use it to describe an idea, but gay marriage does not really exist. It is not joined in heaven by God, and it's only a sinful counterfeit of the real thing. God made marriage uniting husband and wife. We cannot turn around and change the meaning of what God has established. Gay weddings are both an endorsement of homosexuality and a perversion of what marriage means, making it doubly an affront to God. So steer clear. Transgender marriage is also off the table. If there is a man marrying a transgender woman, or vice versa, it's actually a homosexual marriage. So, see my previous paragraph. If it is a woman marrying a transgender woman, while it is technically a man-woman marriage, it is still cosplaying as a homosexual marriage, which is not something that Christians can get on board with. So, Christian. Dear Christian. You wouldn't go to a launch party for a brothel. You wouldn't witness the signing of paperwork so your friend could start a pornography business. You wouldn't attend a swingers convention. So why would you go to a wedding based on sexual immorality? It is essentially a launch party for a legal relationship that does not please God. I've had to decline a wedding invitation on the basis that the couple had an unrighteous relationship. 
we knew one of the couple, we loved this person and we still do. It was hard and it felt bad, but it was loving to demonstrate to the person we knew that we would not, implicitly or otherwise, endorse their sin. They knew God's word and we were not going to pretend that didn't matter by turning up with fake smiles on our faces and a guilty conscience before God. That person has not spoken to us since that day. Not because we have pulled away from them, but most likely because we reminded them of God's holy word, which would not sanction their actions. This was not judgmental on our part, but a loving reminder that this person was in rebellion toward God. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 Abstain from every form of evil. Luke 6.22 Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And Luke 17.3 Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Next question. What about non-Christian heterosexual weddings? Well, when two atheists marry, or two Muslims, or Hindus, or Jews marry, they are actually entering into a real marriage. Marriage itself is a creational reality that God made. So you don't have to be a Christian to enter a true marriage. We as uh, Christians can endorse and celebrate non-Christians when they enter this good relationship that is a shared blessing for all humanity. So, for this kind of wedding, the question isn't about sexual immorality. The question is, is attending this ceremony going to put me in a position where I am worshipping another god? Your average Aussie wedding with a wedding celebrant is not going to invite you to worship another god, so it will ordinarily be okay for you to be in attendance and to celebrate that god-given marital union. You may have to do a bit more legwork or research before you participate in other religious weddings. I'm not overly familiar with other traditional ceremonies, but I can imagine scenarios that would invite witnesses at a wedding to participate in ways that Christians could not join in. Once I was asked to pray the Lord's Prayer at a wedding ceremony flavoured by an Eastern religion. Now, even though I was going to be saying and praying true things to the true God, it was going to be in a context where there was confusion about who that true God was. Their faith is built on a false premise about who God is, and without an opportunity to proclaim the truth, I could not participate. That said, I still attended the wedding, and the couple have entered a real marriage, but I couldn't be involved in the confused religion at the ceremony. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, it says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 20 to 21, it says, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Next question. What if I'm just going to observe, not celebrate? This is hard to do. If you were walking along the beach and you saw a wedding taking place and then you stopped to watch, then you are observing. But if you received an invitation, you RSVP'd and then you turned up with a gift, you're not merely observing. You have turned up to celebrate and to participate. After all, that's what weddings are for, witnessing and celebrating the union. 
Traditionally, the congregation in a wedding is the supporting witnesses. They are there to see this public event take place and, in theory, to provide a kind of assurance of the validity of these legal proceedings. And that's why they traditionally ask the question, if anyone knows why these two should not be joined, speak now or forever hold your peace. And they also say, before God and in the presence of these witnesses, it is also why there are official witnesses who sign the paperwork to be there, to be seated in the congregation, to give the bride and groom a hug and congratulate them, or to say amen to any prayers that are offered, to clap your hands. It's all to celebrate and to participate in what is happening. Think about it. If your absence is likely to be upsetting because it is perceived as rejection, then isn't the opposite also true too? Your presence is perceived by the couple and others as support. If you did go to observe, then you would be morally obligated to object if the opportunity arose. Would you be willing to do that? Unless you are, let's say, a journalist at a celebrity wedding or in a similar situation, I think there's no way to get around the fact that, you, that your presence at a wedding is perceived as support and celebration. In the same way you go to a graduation, a citizenship ceremony, or to a baptism, you are there in celebratory support. Christians cannot celebrate sin, so ordinarily Christians should not go to ungodly weddings. In Ephesians 5.11, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 to 15, do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Next question. Doesn't Jesus teach us to eat with sinners and celebrate the prodigal son's return and be compassionate to the woman caught in adultery? Yes, yes, and yes. Like Jesus himself, we are called to show surprising compassion and undeserved mercy. Yet in each of these examples, the Lord does not ever teach us to support or participate in the sin in order to show love. We can happily eat with adulterers and homosexuals and tax evaders. We can celebrate the return of the prodigal son, but not accept an invitation to go with him to fritter away his inheritance. We can forgive and welcome the ashamed, repenting sinner, but not willingly observe their celebrations of sin. We can participate with all people in good creational blessings. I would happily go to the birthday party of a relative in sin, sell a car to a friend in sin, go to a high school graduation of a relative in sin, invite a friend living in sin to come to church. But I will not go to my friend's celebration of rebellion against God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you almost so you also must forgive. And in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And in Jude 22 and 23, 
Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, to show others mercy with fear, hating even the garment that is stained by the flesh. So, next question. What about being judgmental? Christians are famously cautioned against judgment. Judge not that ye be not judged. Matthew 7, 1. Yet, as you read beyond that single verse, you see in context that Christians are not prohibited from all judgment in all cases, but instead we are to avoid hypocritical judgment and prideful judgment. In fact, it becomes very clear that we must do lots of judging between right and wrong, judging the behavior of others. And for some cross-references, consider John 7.24, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. But let's look at the log in your own eye passage for a moment. It clearly demands us to take account of our own big problems before trying to help others with their small issues. But that's the thing. There is an expectation in that passage that once we have dealt with our own big issues, we will be able to see clearly the need of others and to help them in a non-hypocritical way. We need to judge ourselves with true judgment and then... When things are set right in our own hearts, we're freed to help others in humility. So, for our friends and relatives who are deceived and given over to sin, whether it be homosexuality, transgender stuff, or other forms of sin, we do not pridefully look down on them in judgment, as if we're somehow better than them. Apart from the saving work of Christ, we're all in the same boat, so we, have, we compassionately seek their good by showing them their need, and the answer to that need in Jesus. We come to them with the bad news, that their sin will be their destruction, but also with the good news, that Jesus will take away their sin. All people are in this same boat. All of us have sinned, and all of us need Jesus. In Matthew 7, 4-5, Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Luke six thirty seven. Judge not, and you will be not judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And in John seven twenty four, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Next question. I've made bad choices around this before. What do I do now? Firstly, come before the Lord in repentance, acknowledging that you've done wrong and supporting evil, even if it was unintentional. Contact the relevant people you may have misled with your public witness and tell them you were wrong. Share why your love for Jesus and your neighbor means you reject ungodly weddings. Remember, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Although we have sinned grievously, whether by uh, participating in a so-called big sin or by celebrating that sin, the guilt in all cases is taken away in Christ. Your sin is atoned by the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. His grace has overcome your failures. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And in 1 John 1 verse 9, 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In conclusion, the deceitfulness of sin is tricky. We innately know that our wickedness is wrong, and one of the ways that we try and placate our feelings of guilt is to find external approval for our sin. We look for loopholes that suggest there's really nothing wrong with what we're doing. If others say our sin is good or support us in our sin, then we will comfort ourselves with this to try and push aside the feelings of failure and shame. Gay weddings, trans weddings, adulterous weddings, along with other celebrations and sanctions of sin, are all attempts at legitimizing what God rejects. The worst thing you can do for your neighbor who is deceived and caught in soul-destroying sin is to pacify them or even imply that their headlong plunge into hell is not such a bad thing. If they know you don't approve of their sin, but you turn up to the celebration anyway, you're communicating that your true conviction is to be nice over and above loyalty to Jesus. It says, what you think about me is more important than what God thinks about this. And it also says, offending others is worse than the sin of the wedding itself. It's easy to talk about all this stuff in principle, but it's much harder to have the boldness to put it into practice. It will be hard to tell relatives and close friends that you can't be involved in their special day. You may end up with broken relationships. You will be tempted to compromise. You may be falsely accused of being unloving or judgmental or other slanders. Yet, it is because of our love for them and our love for our Lord that we must abstain from this evil. We are prioritizing preparation for that final big capital D day, both for those who we love who are now living in sin and for we who have already been saved from that sin already. In closing, let me give you a few Bible passages of relevance. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's Matthew ten thirty-seven to 39 In 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And lastly, from Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night.